You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. Thanks for reading. How to become rich. Um, I just realized that next week we are starting a new series. And the first one is Jesus Encounter with the Rich. So... Um, anyway, I, I felt ob- obliged to uh, give at least an anti-scam alert. Uh, if you see messages like that, how to become rich on your mobile phone or things like that, do, do not click that. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Um, Lord, truly, we long to be rich, rich in you. We long for true riches. We long to be a church that is shaped by your word. So today we pray that you speak to us. May your spirit Uh, speak to us powerfully so that we may be led and compelled to respond to you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, Netflix uh, recently released a documentary on the making of uh, the the singer, singer, this MTV called We Are The World. Anyone knows the song, We Are The World? 1985, you know the song? (laughs) Great, wonderful. Um, I see a lot of people looking confused, but there are some of us who who say that they know. (laughs) Um, and as we are wrapping up the book of Philippians, the theme of unity and, and giving, uh, and then as I was watching the documentary, I, I thought there's some uh, connection there. It was emotional for me to watch that documentary on uh, the making of We Are The World. Uh, context, the 80s and the 90s that I uh, grew up in uh, were filled with the music of uh, singers like Stevie Wonder. My mom kept playing that song, I just called to say I love you again and again in the, in the house. Uh, in the 90s, uh, my favorite album is uh, Dangerous by Michael Jackson. It was like played on and on and on. So, so these were legends to me. Uh, but I must confess that when I saw Kenny Roger, he's known as the guy who sells chicken rather than his music. 
um, to me. Um, and you know, the project covers how it was such a historical feat to gather the biggest stars of a generation into a room, an old school recording room, uh, to produce an album, to produce a single, uh, uh, an MTV uh, that is known for the past 40 years. It's one of the most famous songs. And what, what I found fascinating is the song itself, the lyrics, it follows some kind of a liturgy. Again, I'm not going to sing for us. I'm just going to go through the lyrics. The chorus, it says, we are the world. This is who we are, our identity. We are the children. And from there, it moved to a purpose statement. We are the ones who make a brighter day. And then it moved to a response. So let's start giving. Wow. And I was like, this, this is like, there's, there's a liturgy there. It starts with an identity, a purpose, and a response. Now, the basis of the project of that of the song is when you put the richest people, the most influential, the most talented people of a generation into a room, and you gather all their resources and their talents, you can tackle the problems of the world. You can resolve things like poverty. It's inspiring. The assumption is riches in wealth can solve the problems of the world. Riches in influence can solve this problem. Riches in talent can overcome anything. Now, that was a great song, right? It was a great song. Uh, 40 years later, we realized that it really solved nothing. <laughs> Poverty still exists. Uh, in fact, um, 40 years from now, we, we now realize that the, the problem of the world is far more complex and serious. We fantasize of having rich billionaires, superheroes like Bruce Wayne, Tony Sachs, and now we have them in real life, tech billionaires. Now, there are no heroes who can solve the problems of this world. That's another topic. Uh, no superstars, no riches can help us to overcome the deeper problems that humanity faces. If anything, they help us to see how complex, how deep our problems are. And the more resources we have, the, 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 the more we realize that this is beyond us. This is, this is impossible. Nothing seems enough. Now, um, perhaps more profoundly, uh, the superstars of 1985 themselves, with all the money and fame, uh, they, they had a variety of deep personal issues and problems in their life. Everyone was filled with insecurity, even in the, in the documentary, in the recording room. Uh, everyone was afraid to sing off-key. <laughs> they were all nervous. Bob Dylan, he looked so nervous. Um, there was a moment when, when all the different stars, they, they felt relaxed. They were gathering each other. They were asking for autograph and signature from each other. And I was like, this is so profound. They needed approval from one another. The big names. Now, money doesn't make ones rich. What about us today? Uh, we are here, 2024, in the ballroom in Singapore, full of uh, bright minds, great talents. I believe oh, even in this ballroom, uh, gathered here, um, various forms of riches, talents, and yet, if we are honest, the struggle to feel secure, the struggle to feel joy. Uh, for the post-World War um, boomers generations, uh, to be rich and happy means having food on the table, right? You have to be well provided for. Today we live in a, in a time when physical hunger may not be an issue for most of us. 
But yet, uh, the question remains, well, why do we feel like something is missing? Why do we feel so poor? Why do we feel so anxious and fearful? Why do we feel so insecure? What must I own? What must I buy? What coaching program must I go through to feel secure, to feel satisfied, to feel content? What must I do to be truly rich and happy? As we wrap up the book of Philippians, here's my sermon outline. Just three things as the, as the book wrapped up. Learn contentment, give, and to prioritize people. Learn contentment. Let me read for us from verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, let's just camp at the first couple of verses. I rejoice. Verse 10. As we wrap up this book, Paul again reminds us of Christian joy. Rejoice. He said in, in, in this letter, rejoice a few times. Rejoice. Again, I said rejoice. Just a few you know, paragraphs be, be, before this. And now as the book is coming to an end, the letter is coming to an end, Paul reminds us about rejoicing. Now, um, for those of us who may be uh, new here, today is your first time, and you may be new to the series, uh, the context is Paul is in prison. In many ways, his life is over. He had no future in, in many ways. By the eyes of the world, by the standard of the world, the only thing that is anticipating him at that point is death, impending death, possibly by beheading. That is his future. Nothing else to boast about. And yet, he rejoiced. And yet, he urged us to rejoice. Now, the basis of his Christian joy is found in chapter 1. Let me just read for us a few verses in, in chapter 1. This is what Paul says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, that Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. And the most famous line in the book of Philippians, for to me, to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is Paul's basis for rejoicing. This is his Christian joy. The rejoicing of Paul throughout this book is grounded in this very profound line. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Christ be honoured in my life, in losses, in gains, when I'm well, when I'm not well, everything to make Jesus look good. And because that, that is his end point, everything is proceeding as planned. And hence, he rejoices. It doesn't matter whether he looks bad, as long as Jesus looks good. His rejoicing is in the concern of the saints for him because through their love, through, through the love of the church in Philippi, through their giving, they make Jesus look good. And therefore, he's rejoicing. Now, some of us may be thinking, and often I remember in this uh, series, as we go through um, Bible study during um, our community group studies, often people have this impression that you know, this guy seems so extreme. Paul is so extreme. He's like this, you know, different level of Christianity altogether. The, the way he talks, you know, he just wants to glorify God in all situations. Now, I, I'm just the average Christian, right? I come to church on Sunday. I don't aspire to be as extreme as Paul. 
Can I tell us that what he believed in is actually something that we have confessed in RAC many times? It's confessed by Christians across the world. Now, in our church, we have this uh, truth that makes us sing. Uh, we haven't confessed that and read that together for, for, for a while. Um, but I just want to show you that actually these are things that you have read out before at our service in this ballroom. Why, why don't we do it you know, just, just, to, just to remember how it feels like? Um, will you follow me? Let me ask the question, and you guys just respond by reciting this confession together. This is adapted by Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, in our truth to make us sing. Church... What is our only comfort in life and in death? Let's recite. We are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death. God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We belong to Jesus. Everything that we are, everything that we own belongs to Him and is served to glorify Him and Him alone. We confess this together. Now, what Paul did was to leave out the implication of that which we have confessed. Paul simply took the truth that you and I confess and he applied it deeply and consistently across his life. Church, we confess this. Leave it. And then he continues in verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Now, being content doesn't just happen. Look at, look at the verses. It involves learning. <laughs> learning. Now, what's the secret of being content? You know? The, in fact, um, when you look at this verse, learning to be content, isn't it perplexing that Paul is saying we need to learn to be content in both plenty and hunger, right? Um, what do I mean by that? It's actually a lot more obvious when I think about contentment in the context of lack. I don't have a lot, and God is teaching me to be content, right? After that is how we apply it. But, but look at what Paul is saying. You need to learn contentment in the midst of plenty, in the midst of abundance. When you lack you learn to manage expectation and be content. But that, that is not what Paul is saying. Maybe, yes, in some ways, uh, that also applies in, in both riches and poverty. We learn to be content. But more so for our context. Now, we have riches in the world. We have materials. Most of us are well provided for. You are healthy. You, you are well-fed, pain-free. You have enough money in the bank account. And Paul is saying to us that it is in those moments when you have plenty that you have to learn to be content. And we all understand that right, in, in some ways, right? The more you have, the more you want. Isn't that fascinating? The more you have, the more you crave. Shardin let us in that confession earlier. What is it that you, you desire? If only I have that, that blank, then my life will be complete. Then finally, I'll be happy. Now, guess what? If you, if you write, wrote down in your journal five years ago, if I have that thing, then my life will be complete, then I will be happy. Maybe right now you look at those notes that you have written five years ago and you realize that I've actually achieved them. And guess what? I, I'm still not happy. I'm still looking for what is next. What is next? What's the next thing to accomplish? 
Now, being rich is not needing to say, if only I have that. It's to say, I am content. I am happy. And that is not natural. That is not that. That is supernatural because you and I, in our sinful hearts, we always, always crave for something else that we assume if we have that, that's going to satisfy us. That's going to help us. And therefore, the crisis of discontentment in our life and in our world. Uh, I, I read an article um, that was sent to my mailbox uh, from CCF. Uh, it's a Christian uh, organization that I subscribe to and follow. So it's an article titled, Think You Are Immune to Adultery, published on February 15, just a few days ago. And there was a line that, that struck me. It says, Adultery doesn't seem to be on the horizon, but that's because we assume it begins with lust, right? Often we assume adultery as a sin that is related to lust. Instead, it begins with discontent. It begins with discontent. Discontent is the root of many sins. Why do you think it is often the richest people who commit frauds? Not the poorest people. It's the richest people who commit the greatest frauds in the world. The root of the issue is the heart. It's not in external circumstances. It's in the heart. Sinful hearts. So when Paul speaks about this mysterious secret to accomplish contentment, he's not referring to some set of techniques, seven steps, three principles that you can just apply and, and you can be content. He's talking about our contentment being based in the person, in the relationship, in the treasure that we already have. What is his treasure? Or rather, who is his treasure? Who is he? Uh, contentment and gladness that Paul referred to is grounded in Jesus. The rejoicing that he's referring to points us to resting in Jesus, points us to walking closely with Jesus. And it is in that context where we see that everything is a loss compared to the surpassing gain of having Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our best friend, that Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthened me in verse 13. Now, this is a famous verse, right? It's a really, really famous verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. But I want to highlight that Paul is referring to whether in plenty or in lack, in losses and in gain by, by life or death, Christ is enough for me. I can be content because Jesus is all I need. Now, um, I'm guilty of abusing this verse in the past when I first read it. Uh, this is like one of the most popularly quoted verses. Uh, sportsmen chant this verse before they take the penalty shot. You know, I can do all things through Christ's strength in me, therefore I can do this. Uh, some of us claim this verse uh, before a major exam um, you know, or a major work interview. I can do it. I can do all things through Christ's strength who strengthened me. Now that is completely not what this verse is meant to do for us. In fact, it's actually mean the opposite. It means even if the worst outcome happened, even if I miss the penalty shot, even if I you know, mess up that exam that is so important to me, even if I don't get the job that I wish so much for, and, and my life is okay. I am glad. I am happy. Because in Christ, I can go through this. I can be glad. I can be satisfied. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is Again, Christ, not good health. Christ is enough, not money and worldly riches. Christ is enough, not fame and popularity. Christ is enough, not even life itself, because Christ is enough. So how to become rich? 
Let contentment. That's my first point. Second point, give. Now, verse 14 to 20 is about Christian giving. Uh, surprise, surprise. The most generous people who give the most, often they, are, they may not be the richest people, really. And Paul is about to give thanks to a church that's been supporting him throughout his ministry. They are not the biggest church, but they were the most generous people. And Paul wrote this letter to thank them for their gospel partnership and their generous giving. The, rich, the most generous people, they often are not the rich. I remember as a young person receiving, you know, Ang Bao during Chinese New Year, often judging some of my richest relatives <laughs> who give $2 and <laughs> things like that. Uh, sorry. I don't, uh, I'll stop revealing my sinful heart. <laughs> anyway, um, let's see the point. Verse 14. So this is how he begins as he gives thanks for his... No, no, by the way, when he, talk, when he address uh, these people and give thanks for them, the, the first verse is, goes like this. It was kind of you to share my trouble. Let's pause here for a while. Friends, this is how the Bible defines kindness. This is how it looks like to be kind to each other. Have you experienced someone who has been kind to you? Now, when someone shares your trouble, you, you, you know what I mean. Have you experienced that before? That kind of kindness? Someone coming to you just to press in, just to encourage, in moments when you feel discouraged or isolated or going through a tough time, coming to you and saying, hey, you are not alone. I'm here to go through this with you. Let's go through this together. Now, the Bible defined that as kindness. Now, that is a form of generosity. You know why? Because it involves giving ourselves away. It involves giving away of mental and emotional energy to attend to someone. It involves spending efforts to consider what are helpful words to say. Now, often it, it involves suspending yourself and your own needs so that you can attend to the other person. Now, um, you know, often this, this could be how it looks like in even in a church context, right? someone who is very troubled come to you. They want to talk about their trouble. And, you know, I've just been going through a tough time, uh, you know, whatever, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I've been through something like that before. And your response is to tell them about your own experience <laughs> for the next 35 minutes. Now, being kind many times simply involves giving people our attention and loving them, empathizing with them praying for them and helping them to know that they are not alone. Uh, it, it, it can mean not giving solution because, because, I know it could be helpful in some situation to give some solution, but the thing is the most complex and difficult life situations, they often don't have simple answers or solution. And what we need, more than just simple solutions, which sometimes can feel disrespectful, because complex problem, but you give a simple solution. The alternative is to give of ourselves to them and be kind. This is what the scripture said. This is how kindness looks like. And verse 15 to 16, Paul revealed that no church entered into partnership with him except the church in Philippi. Uh, and, and he said that they sent him help for his needs again and again. Now, Paul revealed that he wasn't that well-funded a large part of his ministry was actually supported by one church. A, a small, in fact, maybe insignificant, uh, not super rich church. They gave. 
they gave generously. And here is Paul's thank you note to them. He clarified, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Verse 17. Now Paul is saying, he's not saying that the gift doesn't matter at, at, at all. You know, he's, he thanked them for the gift. But more than just the gift, the fact that they are giving, the fact that they are giving sacrificially, it tells, them, tells him about their faith. It reveals the fruit of the gospel in their life. And so beyond the gift, Paul is rejoicing because he sees godliness in them. He sees contentment in them. He sees their generous giving as, as something that is out of the depths of their walk with Christ Jesus because they treasure Jesus, therefore they treasure His kingdom work. And that is what compelled them to give. Now friends, we don't give to simply needs, okay? We're not just giving because you know, there's some fundraiser, there's some good causes that we're giving to that we hope to see you know, the impacts and the significance uh, that, were, that was accomplished through our giving. We give because of God. We give because of who He is. The fruit here refers to the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of the Spirit, fruit that reveals that you and I are in Christ. And verse 18 to 19, the fruit of giving is like, I'm reading from verse 18, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then Paul continues, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now Paul described uh, the gift of the, the, the Philippians using language of sacrifices in the Old Testament. He talks about costly worship. Giving is costly. Giving is a form of worship. And here, the clue that we see here is, as Paul talks about, my God will supply every need of yours. These are not rich people. These are needy people who needed assurance that God will supply my needs as they give out of faith, as they give sacrificially. Now, in the Old Testament, there were laws on sacrifices. Uh, God set certain rules and bars to command His people to give in a very specific way. The tithe, the 10%, the various kinds of sacrifices, they were very specific to set the minimum. Here is what is required for you to worship me. Here's the amount. Here's what I want you to give. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus gave Himself up for us, for you and us. So, so as to set, set, set us free to give of ourselves for Him and for His kingdom. The limit has been removed. Our life is now set free to give sacrificially out of both poverty and riches. Our life is not measured by what we own, but by what we give. The power of the cross has defeated our fear of lack. It has loosened the grip of materialism on us and God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We're not talking about material riches here. We are talking about rich in the glory of Jesus. Now, as we arrive here, the book of Philippians reminds me of another letter that Paul wrote. And this verse uh, from 2 Corinthians came to mind. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you and I, by his poverty, we might become rich. Friends, I have good news for us. 
the Christian faith is not about, you know, let's be generous, let's give sacrificial. Yes, it is about that, but it is not first about that. The Christian faith is not about us doing this, giving of this and that. The Christian faith is one that first recognizes that we are poor. We are bankrupt. You and I, in our bank account of righteousness, we have nothing at all. Zero. Zero, nothing at all. And what did the righteous God do for us? He came. He drew near. And in this verse, He took on our poverty. He took that upon Himself. The good news of Christianity is that we live in a hopeless world and we have no answer to solve any of the world problems. We cannot even solve the problem of our own hearts. And God has to come from the outside in as the ultimate intervention because our self-seeking sinful hearts can never be satisfied, can never solve our own problem. We are poor in spirit. We are poor in righteousness. I love the assurance that we read out just now. God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only Son. It cost Him. Jesus lived a generous and sacrificial life, a holy, perfect life that you and I cannot live. He went to the cross and died like a poor beggar. Nothing at all on him. He had nothing. He took on the depths of sin and death so that sinners like you and I can be restored. So that in exchange, we can receive his riches, the riches of his glory, the riches of forgiveness, the riches of adoption, the riches of sonship. So the question is no longer, how much must I give to appease to God? He has been appeased once and for all by the, Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus. The question is no longer about, you know, um, how does generosity look like? We are set free by the Spirit to give sacrificially because of how we have received from Him first. Now, how do Christians give? In some ways, we give in the same world as everyone else. Non-Christian, Christian, we all give the same way. We give to things that matters the most to us, right? Non-Christian, Christian, we all give to things that matters the most to us. We spend money on what brings us the greatest delight and satisfaction, things of greatest worth and values to us. So my question for us today is, if our giving is a diagnostic window into our hearts, for our love for God and His kingdom. How are you doing? How are you doing in your giving? To put it this way, if you're accused of being a Christian in court and they're looking for evidence, they check your financial statement, your bank account, your credit card bills, does that reflect enough evidence for you to be guilty as charged? That based on this financial statement, ah, this guy is a Christian. We need to give some thoughts to that, friends. Just to be clear, having a lot of money is not a sin, really. Having a lot of money is not a sin. But the love of having a lot of money is a sin. <laughs> the love of that security that money can bring me, the Bible is clear, is a sin. Hoarding our resources instead of stewarding them well is a sin. But being rich, having money, that's not a sin. I just want to be clear about that in case you know, someone misunderstands what I'm trying to say. Now, for some of us, if you haven't been generous, I'm not trying to manipulate you to give at all. No one is coming after your money. Your money is yours. It is not my concern. It's more like, you know, if, if you are not generous, if you haven't been giving, is there a possibility that it is reflecting a coldness of your heart towards God, towards His people, a lack of love, 
a lack of concern for his kingdom. God loved, he gave. And if you and I, we love him in response to his love, we will give, we will give generously. The book of Philippians is clear about that. He who is rich became poor so that you may become rich. So my sermon title is, How Do You Become Rich? Here's the answer. Christians, you are already rich. You are rich. If you have Jesus, you are rich. Spend a moment to take that in and take that in deeply. And if, we know, my statement about you are rich in Christ, it doesn't bring you any joy at all right now. It's like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, cliche. I know, you know, but it actually doesn't make me feel anything at all. Maybe God is saying something to you today. That, That apathy could be the Holy Spirit reminding you that you need to work on your heart. You need to trust in Him. You need to look to the cross again and again. You need to dwell on His truth and ask yourself the question, the surpassing worth of Jesus, does that statement mean anything to you? Do you believe that Jesus is worth anything, everything? And therefore, do you rejoice? Finally, prioritize people. As the letter comes to a close, we have... Um, a few lines like this, uh, which often we may overlook because it's just greeting, right? It says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. You know, this is Paul being polite, greeting, an exchange of greeting, and just a reminder that, you know, um, to be polite, to, to greet. But the closing words draw attention to the priority and the value of people. This letter is written out of love. Love not for things, but for people. The closing word, bring our attention to the priority and value of people. Now, no, nobody by nature count others more significant than themselves. Nobody by nature, um, in, in some ways, if, if, you, if you look at our conducts, the world that we live in, we often love things more than we love people. We, we love things and we use people instead of the other way around. I keep telling my kids again and again since young, whenever they fight over toys, you know, what, what is more important? Do you love people or do you love things? Because if you love people, your hands, your grip on things will not be so tight. You want to use your possession to bless and serve people. So as, as this letter comes to an end, the focus is on people. Greet every saint. Love them. And then there's this mention of this very interesting group of people. Uh, Verse 22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Wow. You know what it means, friends? Caesar's household. Let me give some context. Paul was jailed by the Roman government. Caesar was the head of it, right? So so he's, he's talking about those who has afflicted him, those who jailed him those who cause pains in his life. And now, how does he relate with them? They are friends. They are fellow saints. They are brothers and sisters. Now, how did that happen? We're not given all the details. We, we, we see some clues, some shades of what, what might happen. We do not know all the details. Paul must have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them to consider them to be saints. That comes from Caesar's household. Now, this is not like some kind of like subtle um, gloating when he's mentioning Caesar. He's, he's not being proud to say that, oh, you know, I managed to convert even the most extreme people. No, he's, he's not coming across that way at all. 
He is saying that the cross, the good news that we have, it has the ultimate victory. It can accomplish the impossible. It changes our hearts and it can turn enemies into siblings, into friends. Now, um, if you are non-Christians here, uh, seated among us, and uh, I'm sounding really weird. What am I talking about? Um, talk to the friend who brought you here. Talk to the non-Christian person who brought you here. Chat with them. As you observe your friend, the person who brought you to church, listen to their songs when they are going through affliction. Listen to the songs and the praise that Christians go through as we go through as, as as we go through affliction, our songs is our response. If you have a Christian friends, you're a non-Christian today, ask your friend about their riches. <laughs> Observe how they prioritize people over things. And Christians, members of RAC, no pressure. <laughs> I'm simply calling you to live out what the Scripture had commanded us to, to love God and to love people. Finally, the last verse, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now notice that um, the spirit here is a singular word, one spirit. We are a people of one mind. Paul called us to that one mind in Christ, one heart, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one people, one love, love for Jesus and Jesus alone. Our greatest riches is Christ. And the implication of that is we love people people filled by His Spirit, people who are driven by His grace, filled by Christ Himself. Now, REC, this is family. We are one people filled by the grace of the Lord Jesus, and that is the most defining for all of us. Uh, I was going through um, difficult day yesterday, wrapping up my prep, and there were some things that were quite stressful um, that I was uh, going through. And a dear brother just sent me a text asking me how I am, and I just sent him back, uh, just honestly sharing about some things in my heart that I noticed that were sinful while I was going through a difficult time. You know, you can go through a difficult time and respond with holiness, and I just noticed that over the weekend, my responses were sinful. I was extremely grumpy, uh, and I was angry and frustrated about a few things. Um, and this dear brother sent me a four-minute prayer over WhatsApp uh, voice note. I was just so moved so, so, so needed. Um, and then in his, in his prayer, he, he said something like, you know, uh, Jacob, you, you uh, always said to us, to, to him, um, that God uses us most powerfully, especially when we are weak. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm in a time where I needed someone to tell me things that I know and I have family to care for me, to support me. And that is a kind of riches that money cannot buy. I felt so rich, honestly. Uh, just before service, uh, two sisters prayed pray, pray for me. Um, just you know, was saying hi to people before the service, and even before I came out to, to pray, someone prayed for me before I uh, delivered my sermon. I'm really rich, really. I feel really, really rich and blessed. I'm rich. I have a savior. I have a family. Do you feel rich? Uh, Bob Dylan, one of the artists who participated in the song "We Are the World." He said this during an interview. He said this, he was honest. I wasn't so convinced about the message of the song, to tell you the truth. He said, I don't think people can save themselves. He said that in an interview, after the song was made. Bob Dylan was right. 
we cannot save ourselves. We cannot love people by our own strength. We need saving from ourselves to make this world a better place. And we have better songs than, you know, uh, the one that were produced in 1985. We have a better saviour than ourselves. In a moment, I'm going to invite us to stand and to sing. And uh, I believe uh, the worship team, uh, they will be leading us in a very familiar song uh, called Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lies in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. And I will trust in Him alone. I will trust in my shepherd alone. His mercy, His goodness, they will lead me home. They will follow me all the days of my life. Now friends, that is our riches. We have a saviour. We have a shepherd. And He's taking us home. This world is not our home, but our shepherd is taking us home. Why don't we stand and I'm going to lead us in a prayer before the worship team lead us in song. Holy Spirit, we pray for you to do your powerful work in us, among us this morning. Everything that your word has spoken today from the book of Philippians, over the past weeks as we studied this wonderful, beautiful letter in the New Testament, we pray that you apply this truth to us. Help us to indeed know that our shepherd saviour, our shepherd king, is enough. And as we declare your goodness, we pray that not only will we declare it through our mouth, but we will declare it through our hearts, through our spirit. Help us to believe, to trust in you, and help us to sing and to worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.